in my mind, I was thinking the upshot would, of the multiple kinds versus natural kinds debate would have some practical implications for robot ethics, because if you have like a, an analog, it doesn't have to be like an isomorph of us, but something that has consciousness that is analogous to ours that was made in the lab, then mm -hmm. it looks like it should probably have the same rights that come with ours. But if, if you go in for like a multiple kinds view, then maybe it shouldn't because it has, it's been programmed or it's been created with different goals. And so maybe it really likes, do you see what I'm saying? So it, do, it yeah, wouldn't have yeah. the same rights as us because it, it's just a different type of thing. Although it's conscious, it's, it's, it's not analogous. It's a whole different new thing. It didn't reach our level. It's a different whole thing. Yeah. It reminds me really strongly of, do you know the pig that wants to be, do you know, I don't the, think so. I don't think so. It's a, it's a joke in one of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy books. Some chef uses um, science to breed a pig who desperately wishes to be eaten. Yeah. This is, sounds exactly right. Yeah. This yeah. is what, yeah. And then the question is, is it right to eat them? So if the organism or the synthetic machine had a kind of consciousness such that its desires were completely and utterly diverging from, from ours, would it have the same moral rights or would it have very different ones? Hey, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. I'm your host, Parker Case, and this is a podcast where we explore all the deepest ideas in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. Today's episode is very, very special. I have with me Dr. Henry Taylor, and we're going to be discussing consciousness as a natural kind. And if you guys are avid listeners of the show, you know that I've been kind of thinking about this idea for a while, kind of toying with it. And I was very excited when I saw uh, Henry's essay being passed around on Twitter. And then he, he raises a bunch of arguments against that view. So I was like, dang it. So I had to have him on to uh, disabuse me of this idea. He is uh, associate professor of philosophy at the University of Birmingham. And uh, his interests are, you know, philosophy of psychology, neuroscience, metaphysics, philosophy of mind type stuff. I'm really excited. It's totally uh, what this channel is all about. Before we jump in, though, I want to thank everyone who's making this podcast happen on Patreon or on YouTube members. If you guys like this show, if you guys like what I do, it's a lot of work. Um, so please consider becoming a Patreon patron or YouTube member. You can support the show. You can keep these lights on, pay for the fancy cameras and uh, feed not just one, but two of my dogs, because I just picked up another puppy yesterday. He's Theophilus's dog, and his name is Anaximander. So you'll be seeing him on the show uh, from time to time. All right, well, that's probably enough. Uh, support the podcast, like all that stuff, please. Thank you. Let's jump in with Dr. Henry Taylor, and let's talk about consciousness in general and consciousness as a natural kind and why we shouldn't think of it that way. Henry, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, man. Uh, but yeah, thanks for having me. Congratulations on the puppy. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's good and bad news. Uh, so I didn't sleep last night because of him, but he's super cute and my wife loves him and I love what him. Too, so. what is he? he is a reverse. Oh man, check this out. Okay. So he's a reverse, <laughs> reverse sheepadoodle. He is tuxedo Merle. So that's extra money. I didn't know that until I was had to pay for him, but, um, he's a reverse sheepadoodle. So he's three parts old English sheepdog, one part, uh, doodle or, uh, the poodle. Yeah. Standard poodle. So he's fine. Wow. Yeah. He's a, he's a goofy dog. Um, so Henry, thank, first of all, thanks so much for coming to the show. This is awesome. I'm really excited about it. Before we jump into consciousness type stuff, I always like to hear from my guests, how'd you get into philosophy? And then, um, if you can think of it, like what made you want to become a professional philosopher? Um, I guess 
Let's go into philosophy, I suppose, because I was quite, um, I think I, in school we did a little bit of philosophy of religion. And I think that, and it was the tiniest, most, most sort of rudimentary stuff. Sure. But um, I really remember coming across the ontological argument for the existence of God. And there was, there was something, there was something about it that, because the, stand, the standard reaction to the ontological argument is that people just think it cannot possibly work. Right. I think that's how most people generally think of it um, when they first come across it. But it always struck me as somehow there's something very strange about the fact that it, it kind of struck me as strange that people were so dismissive of it whilst it also being so important in the history of philosophy. So I kind of had this feeling that there was something I wasn't quite getting wow. um, about it. And that kind of made me um, really curious about it. And then ultimately, when I um, when I had to pick a university degree, it had to be either philosophy or English. And uh, I'm a really slow reader, so I just couldn't take English. So I went for <laughs> philosophy instead because I knew the papers were much shorter. Yeah, that, that really is the, that really is the only reason I ended up doing. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, okay. So my audience. There are a lot of philosophy of religion folks in my audience, and they're going to want to know, like, what, would you ever decide on the ontological argument? I haven't decided. Um, okay. <laughs> I quite, my, my old PhD supervisor, um, E.J. Lowe, um, developed a version of it, which I think he, his belief was that it was the best version available. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, and I, I read that, and it was... The, I think the issue with the ontological argument is, even if... Whenever I've seen a version of it that's been uh, halfway convincing, it's always relied on a lot of other kind of assumptions that I just don't feel qualified to talk about. Sure. So the modal ontological, I know you've interviewed Alvin Plantinga, modal ontological argument, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of modal logic and a lot of modal metaphysics in there. And I think it would, probably not the best idea to try and assess the argument before you know about that stuff. Right. So I think for me, it wasn't so much interesting in terms of whether it was convincing or not. It yeah. was more interesting because it taps into so many other bits and bobs, like cool. stuff, stuff to do with conceptual analysis, properties, modality, conception, conceivability, right. all that kind of stuff. So I haven't decided. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, <clears throat> I always I always make that pitch for philosophy of religion because uh, like you've discovered with the ontological argument, a lot of arguments for God's existence pull in all these other subfields in philosophy. And it's not as easy as just being like, well, that doesn't work because of this. You you have yeah, all these commitments yeah. and you have to get in deep. And I, I love it because it sucks you deeper into, uh, into philosophy. And I love, I love philosophy. Um, mm-hmm. This paper that we're going to be talking about today, uh, it's a paper where you pose some problems for thinking about consciousness as a natural kind. The paper is called for the audience, uh, consciousness as a natural kind and the methodological puzzle of consciousness. Before we, uh, I keep preempting, but before we jump in uh, deep, deep, some people, uh, you've, you've noted to me that uh, some people find problems with studying consciousness scientifically, just in, in general. Um, can you lay that out for us? Why would someone think it's hard or you know, impossible um, to study consciousness as a science or have a, develop a science of consciousness? This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling 
wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, so um, there are two reasons. Well, I mean, there's many, many reasons, but there's two main ones. Partially, they're historical. So partially, it is just that um, throughout the 20th century, we had uh, the rise of an approach called behaviorism, in, right. which I'm sure you're familiar with, in both psychology and philosophy, um, associated with people like um, Willard Quine and B.F. Skinner. And it attempted to understand the mind in terms of the behavioral dispositions of the subjects. So the idea was when we say, oh, um, you love uh, cookies, all that really means is you're disposed to take a cookie if I offer you one. Right. Or, or you're disposed to say yes when I say, would you like a cookie? So it's this very sort of third personal, almost eerie picture where I say, you know, would you like <laughs> a cookie? And you say yes. You know? And that's what... Um, and that, then that's what the mind is. So that's pretty much out of favor these days. But what's interesting about it is that it's often kind of made fun of in um, contemporary philosophy, behaviorism. But it, was, it, it developed a lot of quite sophisticated techniques for psychology. Mm. And consciousness just fit very, very poorly with that because it's just not at all clear um, what kind of behavioral account you could give of consciousness. Yeah. So... Consciousness had a, a kind of, it was a sort of dirty word in psychology for a long while. That changed um, in the late 50s and early 60s with figures like Noam Chomsky and Donald Broadbent um, was a philosopher, it uh, was a psychologist, sorry, who wrote um, a sort of underappreciated book called Perception and Communication, um, which was one of the contributing things that demolished behaviorism. But its kind of legacy of being very suspicious of consciousness in both philosophy and psychology mm. kind of still remain for a long while. Having said that, it's not purely historical. Consciousness is really hard to study. Um, the, one of the, the, there are basic problems, but the, the sort of main overarching problem is to do with its privacy. Yeah. If you're conscious, then arguably you're the only person who knows your conscious experiences. You're certainly the only person who knows your conscious experience in those particular ways. You're the only one who can have your conscious experiences. I'm the only one who can have mine. And you can't just put a, um, what some people sometimes call it, call a consciousness meter uh, to detect whether someone's conscious. You know, if you have a question like, is a pig conscious? You can't just do a blood test. (laughs) For this reason, a lot of people have had this idea that there's something suspicious about trying to study it from a third person point of view. Mm-hmm. And that gets allied to this other claim, which is in order to study something scientifically, it needs to be third personal and objective. Yeah. Um, and that's why it's generally thought to be really difficult. It's changing quite a lot. There are figures like 
Stanislaw Dehaene and uh, Claire Sarjan and various other um, really great consciousness scientists. Um, so it is certainly changing, but in some areas of psychology, um, studying consciousness directly is, to, is still even to this day looked upon with um, quite a lot of suspicion and sometimes with good reason, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm coming in from like the philosophy of mind and I'm uh, taking kind of a hard fork in the podcast in going into AI type stuff uh, and trying to read, you know, the seminal works in there. Uh, uh, shoot. I, if I could name them, I would sound really awesome, but I, I, <laughs> I can't think of it right now. Um, so I'm, I'm reading these works. I'm trying to figure out what's going on and I'm seeing as I've been studying this for the last you know year or so, uh, the science of consciousness, they, they use different language. They have different theories yeah. than the yeah, yeah. philosophy of consciousness and the philosophy of mind type stuff. And I thought, you know, I finally had a good handle on philosophy of mind. And here we are in this other realm. And everyone's talking about computation so much and patternism. And um, yeah. it's really it's been really fun to get into it. Um, but but I've I've I'm more familiar with people who would say consciousness is irreducible. It's private. And then when I talk to people on the AI theory type side or computer science, they're like, well, let's just, you know, bracket that off. And they don't they don't say as much. That's maybe philosopher language, but they they want to bracket that whole thing off and say, just assume that it is. And uh, no, no big deal. Let's just keep running with it. Why? It's almost as if they don't want to deal. Some of the ones that I've talked with are like those philosophical puzzles, like you guys can go play with those, but we're going to go develop AI and stuff. Um, yeah. Have yeah. you have you found that yourself or is that just my own? Um, I, yes, I, yeah, I've definitely found it. I've, I interact with a lot of people. Um, I've, I interact with quite a lot of people in um, computer science, obviously in psychology. Mm -hmm. um, but I've spoken to some roboticists as well and some sort of computer science yeah. psychologists. Um, the, I'm not really sure what to think about it. On the one hand, I think that there, there's this kind of strange tension where everyone kind of agrees that AI throws up all sorts of um, problems and issues um, which are both ethical and for like society and for the way we the way we view um, robots and non-human thinking machines um, so they're both ethical problems and also practical ones what I've found is that the roboticists I've spoken to have for a start, there's a slight selection effect because I have spoken to more roboticists than sort of the theoretical computer scientists. So they do tend to be very uh, interested in how can I build a machine that can, go right. into, that can go into like an earthquake zone, which is a totally laudable um, thing to do. Right. But there's the, the, the ones I've spoken to do tend to be quite open-minded mm -hmm. uh, because of their nature. They're the kind of people who'd want to talk to a philosopher. Um, but... So they're interested in the big picture questions, like um, you know, all these kinds of questions about how much we want robots interacting with us in our day-to-day -day lives. But my impression is that those questions are already so difficult and so advanced mm. um, that to go in and ask a much, an even more difficult question, which was like, when is my robot conscious? Uh, does my vacuum cleaner have rights? You know, um, and do uh, under what conditions should we give, be giving robots rights? I think that that you know, the whole field, as far as I can tell, the whole interdisciplinary field of cognitive science is is just getting its head around the most basic questions. That I, I just 
I'm, I'm personally quite skeptical of whether we could even answer the consciousness question right now. Mm. Um, but that, the, that fact is kind of directly in tension with the fact that it's clearly such an important one. Right. Um, I'm, with, I'm with you on that. Yeah. <laughs> it's just really hard to know what to do. Yeah. And that's, that's another, so getting into this new field, I'm, I'm finding new, um, new, uh, new beef points, new places where people are fighting. And so you got the AI safety people and you got the robot rights people and they're both very, very fervent in their positions. And <laughs> it's like, I understand. I see the arguments on both sides. I get it guys. I don't know where I'm at. Like, pick a side. We're going to go to war. Like, all right, just settle down. <laughs> um, so you, you said, so you recounted why um, some people might think that it, um, it'd be difficult to have a science of consciousness. I think, especially my, my philosophical friends, my philosopher friends, they're really those who have read Searle's Chinese room or, or blocks mm -hmm. Chinese nation stuff. They're like, yeah, of course. Yeah. You can't have this. Uh, where, where are you at on this? Do you think that it's, uh, it's possible to have a science of consciousness? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. 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 Um, I, um, can't, can't see a solution to all the problems mm -hmm. now. Um, but I, I am generally quite, um, confident. Um, it's interesting you mentioned that blocks, the Chinese root uh, the Chinese nation argument was from 1978, I think. Mm. So it's, 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 uh, getting on a bit these days. Yeah. I think I, I, I'm, I wouldn't want to speak for him, of course, but I suspect that Ned Block himself would be much more optimistic these days. Mm. Um, those old arguments that you referred to the, um, the cells and um, Ned Block style arguments are very much directed at kind of what cognitive science was doing a few decades ago. So like old fashioned functionalist arguments, which, yeah. you know, the view that the mind is defined by its causal role in the mental architecture. Yeah. Um, I don't, one of the things for me is that I've never really come up with really good philosophical solutions to all the problems that are often raised by philosophers. Mm -hmm. I've just seen a lot more. So I don't really have philosophical reasons for being more optimistic. I've mm -hmm. just seen a lot more psychology that's trying to study consciousness where I, where I look at it and think, oh yeah, that's, that's really impressive work, you know, yeah, yeah. or there's, there's just been so many occasions when I've thought about these philosophical problems. And then I've met scientists where I've, I've thought, oh yeah, that's quite like, you know, you know, so a standard philosophical, um, standard philosophical, um, problem might be, how do you study the consciousness in a human being who's outwardly unresponsive? Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, we've had some of those conversations with with Garrett Mint. He he came on and we talked a little bit about oh. that, or how to test for consciousness in non linguistic, uh, presumably conscious beings, including yeah. locked in syndrome and infants and maybe robots and stuff. Yeah, yeah. One of my one of my colleagues, uh, Davinia uh, Fernandez Espeo, works on all that kind of stuff, and I kind of. Um, I, I'm, I'm far more optimistic about those kinds of things than I used to be, mm. um, partially because of things like natural kinds um, framework. Yeah, there are, there are sort of really big problems for consciousness science, though. To be honest, okay. yeah. Or, so I don't want to I don't want to sound too optimistic. <laughs> there are, there, so the met methodological puzzle, just to give it, um, just to give a very brief characterization of it, is um, the primary way you find out what someone's conscious states are is by their report uh, or typically their verbal report or their external behavior. Mm -hmm. 
but of its nature, that means you can only ever detect conscious states which are reportable yeah. or which come out in behavior somehow. So if there were any sort of conscious states that weren't reportable or didn't show up in behavior at all, presumably you could study them. Yeah. Um, and in its essence, that's the problem. And I, I, get, I don't have an answer to that problem, but I just have this vague feeling that maybe we'll solve it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess um, I wonder what counts as behavior. Um, it, it, it seems like in principle, what counts as behavior here for testing consciousness would be anything third person accessible. So even if you had like a cerebro organoid, if you gave it a little laser shock and it, it reacted, um, would that count as behavior? <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. What's a cerebro organoid? It's like uh, like you had like a petri dish of like a brain cell, and you kept growing it and growing it, and at some point know. it's starting to have folds and start to look like a, a brain, and it's like, yeah, is this thing conscious or what do we do with this thing? You know? Oh right, wow, uh, that's interesting. It reminds me of uh, it reminds me a lot of the experiments that we do on sea slugs in the fifties, mm. where so uh, aplysia sea slugs um, don't. I think I'm right um, in the empirical details, they don't have a localized brain. They don't have like a brain. Okay. They just have set, sets of ganglia. And that's how kind of um, far down the evolutionary tree are they are. Wow. But they also show avoidance behavior as well. Okay. Um, it would count as behavior for sure. Uh, whether it would count as behavior that indicates consciousness is, is <laughs> yet another aspect of the problem. It's like, right. how do you study conscious states that don't lead to behavior? Hard to know. Yeah. And how do you know which bits of behavior are indicative of consciousness? Yeah. Hard to know as well. Yeah. Uh, you know, they're all, so they're all kind of past the same problem. Yeah. Well, okay. So, so I want to push down on this problem just a little bit more before we jump into the paper details. Um, a lot of my audience, again, will be very much influenced by uh, Thomas Nagel. Uh, we love mm -hmm. him. Christians love him. Non-Christians love him. Everyone. Christians love him because he's, there's this one quote from one of his books where he's like, I don't want there to be a God. And they're like, yeah, see? But we, I mean, we love this guy and like the view from nowhere, it's like classic text. Right. And, and it's, it's, yeah. or his, his bat paper, um, what's, what's it like to be a bat where it just hammers this point that, that consciousness, the first person perspective is subjective and irreducible and, uh, you know, only observable if it's observable only has private access to the individual, uh, who has the first person perspective. Uh, do you think are you optimistic about that as well? Are you optimistic about like, I don't know, like a type of mental sharing or like Neuralink where I can link up with your brain in the future and experience your experiences? Or do you think that it, it like Nagel's right that like, no, this is absolutely irreducible first person perspective? Hmm. Yeah. And the, what is it like to be a bad paper? Uh, like most philosophers of mine, I've, I've read it many, many times. Um, it's, it's an absolute classic. There is a, an interesting little piece of history there, which is that um, I think there's a quite obscure paper by someone called something Farrell in the 50s. Um, hmm. well, I can't remember his first name. He was a psychologist. But there's, um, it's about the problem of consciousness, I think. And there is a quote in there saying, uh, often I do wonder what it is like to be a bat. Huh. Um, so it, it's actually about a separate topic. I don't think Nagel took the idea from there. I think it's just sure. That's but nice. it's just really striking that the idea of a bat um, as, you know, trying to imagine what it's like to be a bat 
is this kind of staple of explaining just how difficult consciousness is to understand. Right. Um, I, yeah, so with, when it comes to subjectivity, I, I have this, when it comes to like, when it comes to kind of consciousness studies generally, I'm generally pretty much open to anything. Okay. Um, uh, but in this particular area, which is the subject's relationship to their conscious experiences, I do have a very conservative, like uh, conservative in the sense of old fashioned yeah. kind of view. So I, my general view is that, um, conscious experiences are always had by one person Ooh. and it's essential to them that they're had by that person like that, that very conscious experience could never be had by anyone other than that particular person. Cause that's awesome. I, I kind of that. think that I kind of think the person it's hard to kind of express in non-mysterious language, but I feel like the person kind of partially makes up what the conscious experience is. Yeah. So you and I could probably share a conscious experience maybe, but okay. it wouldn't be the same experience as I have it. Because it, if you had mine, if you could tune into my experience, it would still be Henry viewing Parker's experience, right? I'd be, yeah, I just think it would be a different, a new different experience. Yeah. Uh, tuning into your experience would just change it. Because mm -hmm. I think that, and so I argued for this in a paper called uh, "The Relation Between Subjects and Their Conscious Experiences," mm. and basically, I think that when you spell out what a conscious experience is, it is a particular phenomenal state had by a certain subject, mm. and that's what it is to be that experience. Wow. So, if the phenomenal state was had by two subjects or three, or by a different subject. It would just be a different experience. Yeah, um, you, you can't share conscious experiences without changing them. That's that's my view. So it leads you to this quite old-fashioned, almost Cartesian picture where you have one subject. That's why I'm getting so excited because I love I love that view. Yeah, yeah. Um, I love the view partially because of the arguments and partially because so many people are like, "That's not true." So I'm like, "Well, let's see if I can defend that view." That's nice. Um, what about? Well, I mean, so they, say, they say, "Oh, that's not true," but I've also I've never seen anyone plausibly explain how I how I could link up my brain to someone else and experience. Right, <laughs> right, right, right. Um, I wonder about a okay, and this is speculative, right? But let's say that I could like fission. Uh, right. I could I could fission like right now. So I had this I had this qualitative experience, you know, phenomenally phenomenally conscious of the last uh, you know twenty minutes of talking with you. I have that memory. I had that qualitative experience, all that stuff, but I fission off and now there's two of me and it, mm. it, I don't know, maybe, maybe you might say like one is the original and one's not. And so then one has false memories or something, but if it's a case of like genuine fission, it seems like both me and me too has a uh, equal claim on my conscious experiences from the last 20 minutes. And yet we're two different people now it seems like well with the same conscious experiences yeah do you, do you see what i'm trying to gesture at yeah no exactly um that's an interesting case it's like a spin on the classic brain split um mm -hmm. problems for personal identity isn't it um that is an interesting case i don't i don't really know what to say about that case I guess in my heart of hearts, what I want to say is assuming you break off into two people and assuming that no one of you 
really does have better claim to be, you know, you. Like, for example, if one of them kept all your memories and the other one didn't, then one yeah. of them would have the better claim. Right, they? right. Uh, but assuming that's not ca the case, I guess my gut instinct is to say that there's two new people there and neither of them really remember the uh, mm. the conversation. They just, uh, what Sidney Shoemaker would say, they just cue remember it. They quasi remember it. Uh, they yeah. think it's their memory, but it's sure. actually, it literally happened to someone else. Yeah, 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 yeah. It sounds yeah. a bit strange, but um, in some of my moods, I'm quite attracted to this um, mm. sort of four-dimensionalist picture of um, identity where you're never strictly the same person as you were in the past. You're just very, very similar. And if you're already kind of attracted to that kind of view, then it's not so strange to say you're not literally the same person as you were before the fission. You're just yeah. really similar to them. Does, does that make sense? It does. It does make sense. And it also, you know, fission is pretty weird in, it, in itself. So to say that, you know, there you'd be a new person and that's kind of weird and that may be a cost. Well, so is fission. Fissioning, me fissioning off into two people is kind of weird also. So it, the whole thing is weird, I guess. So if you did go in for like a, a, a more classical substance, the Cartesian substance dualism or, or, well, any kind of substance dualism, I guess, where there's a genuine substance that you might just say like, Hey, that's not possible because the, the soul would be the thing that individuates the person and the soul doesn't fission, just the body would fission and there'd be a new soul. And so I guess there's a lot of different ways you could, you could go about answering this one. Yeah. yeah. I guess that there are, uh, I just think that my Descartes scholarship is really bad, but I just <laughs> think that Descartes thought the soul was simple. Uh, ontologically yeah. simple is that right i believe so um it can't be efficient yeah and i believe so and i and i think more the the at least the christian scholars that i know um who are kind of holding down the fort and substance dualism anyways would say like it's a it's a hexaity and so uh, okay yeah yeah so like there's no you're not splitting up hexades yeah i think that um i guess there's two things i want to say about that the first is there are non-cartesian versions of substance dualism where the soul right. isn't simple in fact there's non-cartesian versions of substance dualism where uh, they generally prefer to talk about the self rather than the soul yep but what's interesting about the cartesian i kind of have to think myself into um into a world where you think the soul is a hexaity yeah um which i find it very odd for um other reasons we can go into but sure if that's what you did think, then the problem would actually disappear because what presumably what you'd say is, well, if you fission, then you've got two beings. It doesn't matter which one has the, it doesn't matter they both have the memories. Oh, right. You is whichever one's the hexaity. Wherever you follow the hexaity and that's personal yeah. identity. Yeah. I mean, the hexaity the... is like, a, is, a, is a thing, it's you stripped of all of its properties the primitive pipe. and you can't say anything about it because then that would be a property right so like yeah that's the so least like well, least one satisfying where yeah. the hexaity went is, yeah is that that's or i misunderstood the view no i think you're right that's i am i, I am a substance dualist myself and, I, and a lot of times people will use that as an argument in favor of substance dualism and say look we can we can help with personal identity just follow the follow the the quiddity or the hexaity or follow you know follow the soul but it's like, look, if it has none of the psychological continuity, I know that's not everything, but if it has none of it, like in what sense is it the same person 
you know, tracking yeah. it through. It seems so odd. And they're, well, well, every other review is weird too. And you're like, well, yeah, philosophy of mind's odd. Everything's crazy. I, that's why I like it. So they're, yeah, they're less be, and more plausible, right? But you've got to be suspicious when people start saying, hey, every other view is weird too. Well, <laughs> yeah, it is, but you've still got to defend. <laughs> no, for sure. For sure. I don't know. I, I quite, um, I quite, I think a lot of, I'm quite attracted to the Aristotelian picture of substances okay. where their properties are essential to them as well as just sure. being exceities. I don't know yeah. if you're familiar with that. There's an old debate about whether you, whether you could have been a poached egg or not. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I always ask. Yeah, I always ask if God could put my soul in a desk. Um, that's my version of that. And my yeah, audience loves it. I didn't debate, but if you think that none of your properties are essential to you, then presumably you think you could be a poached egg or a desk. Right. Um, and the, that it's, it's the basic intuition that that can't be right. That fuels the kind of Aristotelian picture. I think. Yeah. Oh, there's a, there's also a, um, in, in substance dualist type, uh, uh, literature, uh, people are saying, look, substance dualism is kind of just a, just the, the nomenclature that's been inherited. We don't have to go in. We could be substance particular, uh, pluralism, and there could be a bunch yeah. of substances, or it could be that you go in for an Aristotelian Thomistic substance dualism, wherein the soul is like the form, which, you know, informs the yeah. body. And then the, what, what's a body, a body is a substance plus an exemplification relation and some properties. And that's just, you know, your bodily soul in that sense. And so it doesn't look like there's actually two substances after all. So I, I am kind of partial to that view. That's a hylomorphic view, isn't it? Uh, yeah, it, I think it's like a thin particular uh, hylomorphic. Uh, okay, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so sorry for the, the folks at home, but, you know, those who have ears, let them hear. Uh, yeah, we went too high too quickly. <laughs> That's good. Well, good. I, I, I don't know, right? The, the basic picture is that the self is, the, the, the body is kind of the matter, and when it's arranged in a certain configuration, you also get the self. And then um, in the same way that marble is just a load of matter, mm. and when you arrange it in a certain configuration, you get a statue. I mean, I sort of see why it's an attractive picture, but I just don't really see... Uh, is it more than just a picture? I don't really know enough about it, but it's what I, I've never really seen the details, like properly worked out so i think it would, yeah. it would go the opposite way it would say that this the um, um the thin particular is first is primary or, or fundamental uh, the language is tough because i know all those things mean different things the, yeah. the the thin particular informs and gives shape to the body um and without that so if your soul is the thin particular the the form of the body if that leaves then you have a corpse you don't have the body right that's like classic aristotelian view yeah and yeah. so it, it would be like the opposite of maybe like uh ontic structural realism where like you, you get the structure in place and then the person emerges out or or is constituted by i know everything is you have to be so careful because i don't know if they would go in for like a strong emergence view or if it's just a constitution view or what but yeah um well let's jump let's jump back onto your paper <laughs> yeah no, this was fun i thanks for letting me go there that was really fun <laughs> yeah um okay so can we go back i think we we need to go back to the methodological problem and just kind of just re-clarify for people um can you can you lay it out for us what what is this problem yeah so it's similar to what i was talking about before um i'm going to say some things now which are actually false 
but I'll say them just so you can get a kind of basic picture. So the problem is emerges from, imagine quite a crude cognitive science, which tried to study consciousness. And it said, uh, the only way that you can study consciousness is if someone, uh, the only way you can study consciousness in someone else is if they tell you you're conscious. So I say, are you conscious of this red ball? Um, you say, yep, I can see that red ball. It's red and here are all its properties. Um, and that means you're conscious of it. So that's, that is the best evidence you can have that someone is um, conscious of a particular item. Yeah. The methodological puzzle has many different aspects to it, but the, um, and there's kind of a, there's an intuitive aspect to it and a much more kind of complex one, which is the intuitive idea is just, what if there were conscious experiences that were in there, in your brain or, or whatever, and you, they were unreportable. You just didn't know about them or you couldn't report them. Mm -hmm. In that case, you know, so imagine you had a conscious experience of a red ball that you couldn't report or, the, yeah. or just that you chose not to report. Okay. And I said, you know, uh, can you see the red ball? And you, you just didn't say anything. I would then, um, I would, as the scientist, I would say, well, they're not conscious of the red ball then. And that would be wrong. Yeah. So that's the kind of intuitive gloss on it. If, if we can only get at consciousness through reportability, then um, conscious experiences that are unreportable would be off lip. We can never study them. But yeah. the sort of intuitive bit, the more sort of the bit that really worries people is a bit more to do with the kind of scientific details, which is that one of the things we know, particularly from the study of vision, is that um, rather than talking about report, we tend these days to talk about cognitive access. Right. So rather than talking about explicitly what people verbally report, we talk about bits of their um, bits of information processed in their visual systems, which they can access in the sense of you know knowing about, thinking about, using in further reasoning. Uh, reporting them if they want, consolidating them into memory. Now, we know that a lot more information gets processed in the visual system than we could ever cognitively access at any one time. Mm -hmm. You can access bits of it, but basically the capacity of the cognitive access system that allows you to report stuff, think about it, reason about it, consolidate it into long-term memory, that capacity is tiny compared to the amount of information that's actually processed by the visual system, which is massive. Mm -hmm. So the more kind of, I suppose, the more sophisticated way of putting the methodological puzzle is, well, there's tons of information processed by the visual system. We only ever con cognitively access a teeny bit of it. How much of it is conscious? Is it just the stuff that's cognitively accessed? Right. Is there the cognitive access stuff plus a little bit more? Or is the cognitive access, the stuff with cognitive access, plus tons of other stuff that's conscious right. that we ever know about? Um, and you can sort of see how those, the kind of intuitive description of the puzzle and, and the more sort of detailed one are kind of linked. Right. They're both to do with what if there's experiences that we somehow can't get access to, or what if there's more experiences out there than we could ever access? It's the same sort of basic picture. Um, yeah. That makes sense. It does. It does. Um, uh, okay. So is cognitive access the same thing as like Ned Block's uh, access consciousness? 
uh, roughly yes. Okay. Um, a philosopher would normally say, oh, no, 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 because of these 38 definitions. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that, uh, that's what he's getting at, I'm pretty sure. It's okay. also, um, it's roughly, I mean, everyone uses all these definitions in different ways. You know, that's what's so tough. And it's really hard to, are they saying the same thing or not? Yeah. It's, it's very tough. And Nedbock himself um, doesn't, use the phrase access consciousness anymore. It tends to say cognitive accessibility or okay. just sometimes just cognitive access to distinguish the stuff that's the information that's accessible from that, which we actually yeah. really do access and know about. Yeah. And very roughly, it's the same kind of faculty that psychologists mean when they talk about working memory oh, or okay. neuroscientists mean when they talk about the global workspace. Yeah, that's, that's very what, roughly yeah. the same ballpark. Yeah, it's it was definitely the global workspace was in in the top of my mind there. Mm -hmm. um, was was accessible to me, I guess. Uh, are there folks that would say, "Look, man, it's it's crazy to say that you have experiences that are not like phenomenally." Oh shoot! Okay. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I just I think I might have just preempted what I was going to say. So, are there anyone? Are there any people who say that just cognitive access? that just is an experience. And so if you don't have cognitive, cognitive access to something in your perceptual field, then it's not um, actually appropriate to call it an experience. Yeah, I think so. Um, I think, um, I think once you chip away a lot of the more, well, very important nuances and sophisticated bits of it, that's basically what global workspace theory says, I think. Right. Right. So, Global workspace theory says there's this system which is located um, basically in the front of your head in um, prefrontal and anterior cingulate cortices and various other bits as well. And that's the global broadcasting system. When that system accesses information, then it becomes conscious and only then. Yeah. That's a kind of headline sort of characterization of global workspace theory. Anyone who held that view, I think, would probably say if it's not accessed by the subject, it's not conscious at all. Gotcha. And yeah. it it, it's, it's an extremely attractive view for many, many reasons. But, the, uh, but I think it's kind of stronger, maybe, as a view than it can initially look. Right. So, you know, it's, the, view doesn't, the view says that you're not conscious of something unless you actually cognitively access it, unless it enters your global workspace or working memory systems and is directly available for, for you to think about, reason with, store in long-term memory and so on. Mm -hmm. That leaves an awful lot of stuff which is totally accessible if you wanted to think about it but just choose not to. Right. So, you know, if you think about the feeling that you have of your feet in your shoes right now, or, you know, stuff, uh, anything, anything else in your visual field, which you could access if you wanted to, but choose not to, they've got to basically say that that's not conscious either, which is yeah. completely reasonable, but it's a much stronger view than maybe it initially looks. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's like, uh, yeah, it's, it's limiting down the definition of consciousness. Like this, this is narrowing the field. Is this, um, yeah. so I, I, I have uh, been coming around to studying Daniel Dennett a little bit more as I'm getting into philosophy of mind. Oh, yeah. 
Is is Denon a proponent of global workspace? Do you know? I think so. Um, he uh, his he in 1991 he referred to his theory as the multiple drafts model. Right. Nowadays he tends to say fame in the brain. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think I don't know if he would literally say I I am a global workspace theorist. Okay. But there's, there's definitely papers where he's talked about he's talked about it in extremely positive terms. It's yeah. I think um, in terms of philosophical proponents, I'm sure he doesn't agree with the entire whole theory. I, I don't know. You'd have to ask yeah. him. But that general picture that the general picture is the same, which is there's tons of information processed all over the place. But the stuff that becomes conscious is the stuff that um, wins against the other yeah. um, information and becomes available to all sorts of different systems in the brain. Yeah, the draft so, that gets published or like the one that gets the most fame in the brain. Yeah, fame, yeah exactly. Fame in the brain. So like um, the way I like to think of it is like there's tons of information all over the place in the brain. Uh, but it's all in these se- separate, small, little, almost module things, which do one thing and they have their information and it's kind of isolated. Yeah. Um, and then you've got a, a, another system which has a tiny capacity. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry about that. Which has Don't a worry. tiny capacity. And what's really cool about that system is it gives the information in it can be used by loads of different systems in the brain. So it's tiny capacity, but loads of different systems interface with it. And the stuff that gets in there is conscious. Okay. Uh, that's roughly, that's pretty similar to um, fame in the brain, isn't it? That's what I was thinking. Yeah. But I wonder, I wonder if, so one, one, uh, we're, we'll talk about this a little bit more too, as we get into, as we finally get into your work, but uh, uh, globe for, uh, a potential problem for global workspace is maybe I'm just thinking of this off the top of my head. If pre, like the prefrontal cortex or lobe and all that stuff <clears throat> doesn't seem like it's from what I've heard, it's not fully developed until like 25 in men. And that's because I care about myself. So I was man. So I'm like, that's when I'll be yes, able to think more and, and renting vans and stuff in the United States. <laughs> uh, <laughs> does, uh, I mean, does that impact global workspace? Cause if, if consciousness is, just uh something that kind of wins fame in the name in the brain to use Dennett's term and your frontal cortex isn't fully developed yet until you're 25 let's just say let's stipulate then are you not fully conscious until the frontal cortex is developed no i i don't um i don't think so i think so here's an analogy mm-hmm. uh you're you know you're your legs aren't fully developed until you're an adult, let's say. Mm. You can still walk. This is good. Yeah. It's just that, you know, it's just that you, I'm not even going to say you walk in a very different way. It's like walking's easy, you know, when you're a little kid. Your mm. organs, your legs don't have to be fully developed in order for you to do that. It, it might just be that the prefrontal cortex, I mean, there's a load of things that it's, it's possible. Like it could be the prefrontal cortex is, responsible for consciousness for example but that it can achieve that well before it's fully developed yeah it might be that younger subjects um they 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 are maybe it's maybe consciousness is not one of the most advanced things it does right 
maybe in organisms that don't have a prefrontal cortex, maybe um, maybe the same function is realized by another part of the brain. Do you see what? Sure, see what? sure. It might yeah. just be that in bee, I, I don't know anything about bee neuroscience or snail neuroscience, but it might be in bees and snails, they might be conscious because the thing, we, we you know, prefrontal cortex and anterior cingular and various other bits and bobs, they do consciousness in us, but they might do, something else might do it totally. in bees. Right, right. Well, so, so in, that, yeah. I'm, well, the, I'm, the the difference would be in in us. Uh, we do know that the free, or if we if we do know that that uh, the prefrontal cortex does it, then you know bees, if they have some other mechanism that's cool and it's multiply realizable or something, great. Mm -hmm. But in us, we know it's not developed when we're seven, like it's going to be when we're twenty five. And I guess I guess they could just say, look, maybe consciousness doesn't come in degrees, and so it's all it's like a light switch, and it's just all or nothing, and so. When you're five or whatever, it just lights up. Or maybe they could say it's it comes in degrees, and it's it sounds weird, but it's not that crazy to think that a 25 year old will have a richer sense of consciousness than a five year old or something like that. Maybe that's not as crazy as it intuitively sounded to me at first. It depends what you mean. Like um, it depends exactly what you mean by that. Like. There are certain senses in which it's definitely true that consciousness comes in degrees. Yeah. So, like, uh, I have a friend who uh, has a daughter who's very young. When she looks at her toys, I, I'm overwhelmingly sure that she's conscious of them. Yeah. So I feel like she's conscious of those toys. Um, now, there's a sense in which my consciousness is more advanced because I can think about, you know, uh, the oppression of the proletariat under late capitalism. <laughs> like, <laughs> so, but yeah. I take it, I, I, so I don't know. I mean, this idea that consciousness comes in degrees, sometimes I've never been quite sure just how strong that's meant to be. Like, when it says it comes in degrees, the idea that, yeah, I can read Victorian novels about uh, naval captains going to Embassy mm -hmm. Falls right. and have thoughts she can't have, but... The idea that it can be a matter of degree, whether she's conscious at all, I do, I do struggle a bit more with. Yeah. Uh, you know, it might, it might just be that, sure, there's things I can have conscious experiences of that they can't, but that's not to say that she's less conscious than me. She's, we're both 100% conscious. It's just we yeah. have different conscious experiences. Yeah. Yeah, that's really good. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, well, yeah. So... Yeah, there's a couple ways you could look at it. I guess there's like the, uh, I'm thinking of like Rosenthal's like hot, like hot theory, or that's redundant. Mm -hmm. His hot, higher order, oh yeah, higher order thought theory. Um, that like, okay, so so a degrees of consciousness could be maybe, you're thinking like someone has more concepts which uh, mm -hmm. give richer experience or, you know, um, you could say that the consciousness is, or the experience is mediated through them. I don't want to say that because I'm more of a direct realist. I think, but what you could, you could go that route or you could go like the fading qualia type view and be like, no, they, they have like half qualia or something. And I think if, if your theory, if a theory predicted that type of thing, where like a five-year-old has like more faded qualia, then that would be a, a pretty major cost for a theory, right? It, it would be, it does, I am quite, I guess, there, there, there is an argument against, well, no, actually, what I was about to say was false. 
Peter Carruthers has um, put forward an argument which is vaguely similar, which where he argues that uh, if global workspace theory, I'm going to butcher this, but if global workspace theory is true, then uh, it must be vague whether animals are conscious mm. because they instantiate some but not all of the features of the global workspace. I think huh. that's very roughly the argument. There's a good exchange with him and Jonathan Birch about this stuff. Actually. Okay. But I will be honest, I've, I've actually written quite a lot on vagueness. Mm. So I'm really interested in vagueness. Um, and I, I, would, I would like to be the kind of person who understood what it meant for consciousness to be vague. But I just, I really feel like I can't. Like <laughs> the idea that the, 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 the five-year-old has conscious experiences, but I see bright red and they see a, like a light pink or something. Like, I just, can't, I, I, I just, like when you say they're vague or more faded, I, I just can't, I can't wrap my head really around it. But that, yeah. I genuinely do believe that might just be a failure of imagination for me. I just yeah. find it so hard to imagine. I no, I'm, imagine I'm, I'm with you on that. Yeah. Experience, but I just can't imagine yeah. what it might be to be vague, whether an organism's conscious or not. That's, and so I'm, I'm with you on that. And I think um, maybe, yeah, I think, I think uh, I'm, I'm with you on that. So I was thinking of that as like a cost. So if, if a theory does predict that, it's like, what, what would that even mean? Cause I can't even imagine having vague, uh, you know, qualia mm. or, 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 um, faded or anything like that or absent i guess absent but like half absent or something um so if your theory predicts that that would happen it's like well you have to explicate that right. for me because i don't even know what you're saying then and may, and so i i don't think anyone would would want to say that their theory predicts that but if you can hold their feet to the fire but i don't know it's it's just that's just a random parker's pensy for everyone back home um i think it's a really good point i mean i i'm, I'm a big fan of the global workspace theory but hmm. a huge uh, I nearly said problem there. A huge question for it, which I've never really seen an answer to, is um, so the basic idea is you've got this, you and I uncontroversially have this system in our brains, which is the global workspace system, uh, or in our minds, you know, whatever. Um, and that we use that to make information available to a wide variety of systems like reasoning, verbal report, deliberative control of action and stuff like that. Yeah. A big question is, well, how sophisticated does that thing have to be? Mm -hmm. Or um, before you get consciousness. So like if you had all those systems, but they were all way simpler, like maybe yeah. they are in some non-human animals, mm -hmm. would it still be conscious or not? Um, I find that really, really difficult to say, yeah. um, especially since the view, a, a lot of the motivation for the view is on, um, uh, is, is, can't, can't tell you one way or the other because it's done on, it's done on subjects that just have, uh, just have a sort of, you know, the, the, the big, the big yeah. one. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. The problem you were getting at, wasn't it? Well, yeah, and so that's good because it's like this is supposed to be a science of consciousness, and and you know I'm not throwing shade at anybody. I I I think it's fascinating too, but it's supposed to be a science of consciousness. But then when we say like, well, what about bees, and which are kind of like you know borderline case, maybe some people just go, oh, no, they're automaton. But whatever, pick the animal that you think is borderline case. It mm. seems like then we're moving from a science of consciousness to a philosophy of consciousness because you're gonna have to throw in like 
like a functionalism or something where you're like, well, look, it's, it's, it's just instantiating the same, you know, inputs, outputs and internal states. So you're like, well, wait, that's not the science of consciousness. So that's just like classic Putnam stuff. Uh, is it, yeah. is that kind of the concern or the, the question? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, it's, uh, I'm going to deflect that question because I don't know the answer to it with a, Good. with an anecdote. So I'm going to rely on them. The worst way of answering a question. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Before COVID, I was doing uh, studying for um, uh, to become a beekeeper, not full time, but okay. I, I was learning about bees um, for that reason, and then COVID happened, and it, it never got finished. So my view is that they are conscious, but that's purely for emotional reasons. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Absolutely no reason whatsoever to believe that. Um, because I, 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 I don't even know how you would begin to start um, mm. trying to... Yeah. I mean, I, that's, that's not saying I'm skeptical about that kind of stuff. I think that um, there's some really good work done by um, people like Jonathan Birch and Heather Browning and various others in the um, LSE research group. Um, Alexandria Boyle's um, involved as well, um, where they, I think... The methodology for that group is to look at the all the classic studies of consciousness, um, the, the classic markers of consciousness, if you will. Yeah. Look across biological taxa and kind of do a checklist where you're like, these organisms can do one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, but they can't do eight, nine, ten. Yeah. And then do that for various biological groups and then try and ascertain from that whether they're conscious or not. Um even yeah, that's tough because the philosophers are going to be like, well, that still doesn't solve the problem of other minds. That you know, that's like, or and then the, the other folks. There's some folks that I know are going to be commenting now, talking about wasps because I guess there's some new stuff on like wasps can recognize faces or something. Oh, is that they, right? That's what I hear. I don't know. I'm just passing on maybe false news or f fake news here, but I've heard that, so I'm not sure. I needed. I like the armchair stuff. I'm. That's why you mm. know we talked about what, Timothy Williamson coming on. And that's why part of it, I just want to sit in the armchair and do my, so I, I do need to get into the more, more of the actual literature, the scientific literature on the science of consciousness type stuff or, or markers or neural correlates and stuff like that. Mm. Um, yeah. Henry, it's, I want to. Um, it, it's yeah. a, a hot, hot topic at the moment in the UK, the, um, the LSE group, which is run by Jonathan Birch, I think. Uh, has recently been able to change the law about the rights of cephalopods, I think. Hmm. Um, and uh, I, my marine biology knowledge is terrible, but um, there's there's a particular group which are now recognized as conscious organisms as a result of their work. Oh, yeah, um, okay. And given um, certain rights under the law um, as a result of them. Um, Does but... that include, like, not boiling lobsters? I honestly don't know, I'm afraid. I heard uh, that. The lobsters crustaceans. Yeah, I don't know. But I don't, yeah, they are crustaceans, but I don't know. I, when I hear cephalopod, I think of um, like roly polies, and I don't know. So I don't know. Yeah, I gotta, yeah this is the I thing. I'm going to throw a in that everything I just said yeah, might be false. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Great biology is all. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Okay. So we got access, access, uh, we got cognitive access and consciousness the the methodological problem is distinguishing consciousness from cognitive access yeah. and then you raise this novel problem again folks the paper is consciousness as a natural kind and the methodological puzzle of consciousness the novel mm -hmm. problem that you consider is um conceiving of consciousness as a natural kind if you do that 
then you cannot distinguish consciousness from cognitive access. Um, does that sound um, right? Well, very, very close. It's uh, one of the main advantages of the natural kinds approach, as it's called, to consciousness. Mm -hmm. One of the things that at least some of its proponents have claimed is that um, it can help distinguish uh, consciousness from cognitive access. So it's not it's not like um, if consciousness is a natural kind, then the problem is unsolvable. It's more like if there's a solution, it it, it won't stem from the fact that consciousness is a natural kind. Ah, uh, this being a natural kind doesn't help you. Yeah, because that's the claim of the natural kind theorists. Sorry, it's like uh, that's the claim of the natural kind theorists that it will help, and you're saying no, it won't. Is that right? Uh, yeah, it's the yeah, it's the claim of at least some of them. The, 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 there's been um, work on consciousness as a natural kind is uh, just gearing up now. Um, okay. the, the main thinkers would be people like uh, Nicholas Shea, Tim Bain, uh, Cecily Whiteley, and uh, Elizabeth Irvine, although uh, Irvine's a bit more skeptical um, okay. of the approach. But certainly one of the main claimed advantages is that it uh, can help solve a methodological puzzle. Yeah, I yeah. don't think it can. Okay. Awesome. Um, okay. Well, you have this NAS uh, principle that I might call it no access scenario. So it's a mm -hmm. uh, scenario. Um, and it's, it, folks, this is tough to do when it's like, a you need to go read the paper. I'll, I'll yeah. make sure um, it, I'll link that so you can go and find it because there's only so much you can do on a philosophy uh, podcast when you're not seeing it. But subject S has phenomenally conscious experience at time T but S did not cognitively, cognitively access that experience at time T. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. That's right. <laughs> I almost just yeah. butchered it. That's, yeah. No, no, it's fine. It's just, uh, it's just a more precise way of talking about the problem we were talking about before. Yeah. So, like, the problem is if we can only study consciousness through cognitive access, Yeah. then what if there is a case where someone has a conscious experience that they don't cognitively access? Right. So that why in the paper I called the no access scenario, mm -hmm. it it has this sort of slightly annoying philosophers talk of like subject S at time T under condition P with properties X and things like yeah. that. But really that's what it's talking about. It's just saying if yeah. there were a conscious experience that the subject didn't access, then we couldn't know about it. That's all right. it's saying. Right. Yeah. I always I always add those into my papers for my professors just the the annoying philosophy uh stuff just because i'm like look i can do this too let's let me show you that i know how to use variables and stuff as well and i think it, it probably annoys them because i do it too much but um so you you raise this puzzle uh, and another uh clarification that you make is like hey i'm not saying you you say you're not saying that these situations do exist but it looks like the the possibility that they exist is what's doing the work right yeah the problem is you can, the methodological puzzle in brief is you can only ever study conscious experiences that have been cognitively accessed. Yeah. So if there's any that aren't cognitively accessed, you cannot study those scientifically. Right. I don't know if I agree with that claim, but that's the methodological problem. Yeah. That's the problem. And so the problem is not that there definitely are experiences like that. The problem is we'll never know whether there are experiences. Right. It's like if you had a if you had a, a net 
to catch fish and it had certain slats or whatever certain holes in it so it can catch all these fish and you go look all the fish in this lake are this size you go how do we know that you know if they were any smaller they'd fall right through the net you, you can't yeah. know that exactly that's exactly the problem yeah 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 cool so we so our evidence only ever tells us it our, our evidence is completely and utterly insensitive to whether there's tiny fish mm-hmm. all right our evidence is totally insensitive as to whether there are conscious experiences that are uncognitively accessed. Yeah. I wonder, anyway, I wonder if, yeah, if someone, if a more uh, pragmatist type thinker in the audience would say, does it matter? Because we would never be able to know, right. We'd never be able to know because our net is the same size, no matter what. So we'd never, yeah, we, there might be these tiny fish, but if we can't eat the fish, if it's not practical, you know, like, if there, if you have con- conscious states that you can't access, then how would we ever even know? And you're just, you're saying, well, look, if it's possible, if it's a possibility, because we're talking philosophy here, then certain ramifications or implications are had for different theories, right? Well, absolutely. I mean, it definitely has. There's, there's, there's a couple of ways in which I disagree with that kind of pragmatist. Uh, yeah. Thing. The first one is. It's, it flatly does have ramifications for scientific studies, theories of consciousness as well. Okay. So it, it's not that it's purely philosophical as a problem. Like it's more that um, there are certain theories which predict one thing and other theories which predict another. Uh, yeah. So it's, it's, it's flatly inconsistent with some scientific theories and consistent with others. So it's not a purely scientific thing. But I think I take it that the pragmatist is just going to say, I, I suppose the opponent that you're imagining might just respond to that and say, um, okay, different scientific theories do depend on it, but uh, they don't matter either. I don't know. If they do that, then you, I don't know why they're watching this podcast. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's too yeah, far. If we were a podcast about the science and philosophy of consciousness, and then you yeah. say, well, who cares about science and consciousness? Right. But I, get, I don't know. I, I find it hard to believe that there's no uh, ethical ramifications. Um, yeah. Typically, people, I take it that a, a huge number of ethicists think that consciousness is ethically important in some way. Totally. So working yeah. out where it is in the brain, how it's how it's brought about. Um, I mean, if it is a brain thing, of course. Sure. Uh, working out how it's realized, things like that. I take it that. I, I find it very diff- I find it very hard to believe that there's no more practical applications of that result. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, so maybe maybe continuing on that point, we can look at two scientific theories of consciousness. Um, the global we've talked about global workspace, but but bringing bringing it back out and applying the no access scenario to global workspace, uh, tying that up in a bow, and then the recurrent processing theory. So I think this might be a way to also you know. Sorry, pragmatist, but we're going to we're going to show you some direct implications here. <laughs> well, I'm, I like pragmatism. I don't want to come across. Like oh, I love I love poking at my pragmatist. I have some pragmatist friends who are like you because I always characterize philosophy as um, like classical and then analytic and continental. And the pragmatists are always like, what about us? And the phenomenolo- phenomenologists are saying, I'm like, sorry, guys, I can't include everyone in every sentence that I'm utter <laughs> about philosophy, but. Yeah, I, I I mean I don't know I just take a step aside. I quite like pragmatism and phenomenology as well. I, yeah. I don't 
why do we all disagree so much? You know, why can't it's a good good. Well, I I try to bring them all on the podcast. I want to hear from everybody. I, I really like the phenomenologist because I've I've a good uh friend who's also now my professor who's a hardcore phenomenologist. So okay. um yeah, I like some of that stuff too. And it goes nicely with the philosophy of mind, so that's cool. Yeah. yeah. Um uh, yeah, so, yeah, theories of consciousness. So, like, um, so, no, I'm a bit distracted. I actually have to go Sorry. and lecture. I have to lecture um, phenomenology in an hour. Uh, so my mind jumps ahead to that, but we, we, <laughs> so we, we, we can't go there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, workspace and recurrent uh, process yeah, we theory. Can't, we can't sit here drinking apricot cocktails talking about... Oh, man, that theory. sounds nice. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, okay. So global workspace theory very roughly says... You've got this cognitive access system, and um, that's a really a multifunctional system. And its job is to take information from elsewhere in the brain uh, or in the mind and to make it available to uh, a, a variety of different reasoning systems. Yeah. So that's global workspace theory in a very crude form, and mm -hmm. um, just sort of a crude summary. The problem. So what it says is, in order to be conscious. Um, Information has to be accessed by global workspace. Therefore, it says that information which is not cognitively accessed is not conscious. So the methodological puzzle says, well, if there's information that's not cognitively accessed, we could never know about it. But it also follows that if there's information that's not cognitively accessed, then workspace, global workspace theory would be false. Mm. Because global workspace theory says only, and I, this is a slightly crude because I'm sure there are some global workspace theorists who might want to try and sort of um, alter the view to accommodate this. But the classic picture of it is if the things, if the information is not cognitively accessed, then it is not conscious. Right. So that's, that's the issue. If the kind of things, the no access scenario, that I mentioned, if they're real, then global workspace theory is false. Yeah. Okay. Conver conversely, um, theories like the recurrent processing theory. So my, my, I have to be honest, my knowledge of this is much uh, less um, detailed than my knowledge of global workspace. Mm -hmm. But the basic idea is um, that there are two important, well, there are many important processes in the visual system. Two that are particularly important is uh, what's called the fast feed forward sweep. So the idea is that visual information enters your eyes, gets processed, gets rooted from your eyes to the visual cortex at the back of your head um, via a, a system in the middle called um, the LGN. Okay. Um, the, uh, uh, the lateral uh, geniculate nuclei. It goes to the visual cortex in the back of your head and the information sort of moves forward and eventually ending up in your the front of your brain. Mm -hmm. ending up um you know that's the kind of process it has yeah that's obviously a really crude picture but there's a very interesting moment of processing called recurrent processing which is where um systems subsystems that are further along in this train start recurring information back to earlier systems. yeah yeah and that's quite and, and there are certain parts of that in visual cortex where consciousness arises according to recur recurrent processing theory. Okay. So yeah. that view of consciousness is highly associated with the Amsterdam group of psychologists and 
neuroscientists. Okay. And um, like I said, I'm not as okay with the details as, of that as I am with global workspace theory. But one of the important ramifications of it is that apparently it looks like you get recurrent, recurrent processing in the relevant areas of visual cortex without cognitive access. Hmm. So that, if the theory is correct and um, recurrent processing in those particular bits of visual cortex are sufficient for consciousness, then given that they're not cognitively accessed, then there must be some conscious experiences that aren't cognitively accessed. Uh So all of that with lots and lots of detail. I don't know how many people are still listening, probably no one. (laughs) (laughs) No, but the take-home message is recurrent processing theory says cognitive uh, consciousness without cognitive access is possible. Global workspace theory says it's not possible. The only way you can decide between them is by working out whether it's possible or not. Methodological puzzle says you can't. Therefore, the methodological puzzle is a problem for the science of consciousness. Nice. How is that? Yeah. Is that all right? I, I love that. I love that. And um, it's it's fun because so I'm trying to I'm trying to introduce this to a lot of my philosopher and philosopher philosophy of religion friends. Um, but also I'm, I'm picking up a lot more uh, AI folks that are listening now. And I know global workspace is is a is a method that's proposed in AI and how we're going to have general uh, a artificial general intelligence. And I believe recurrent processing theory was like issued by the, uh, uh, attention is all you need paper where they're like the, the large language models are all one way and they don't have recurrence. And some people say that's why uh, they can never be, uh, artificially general intelligent or, or conscious, sorry, synthetic conscious. So just for all the folks at home, like this stuff is awesome because it's philosophy and I love that, but it also has all these ramification implications in different fields as oh, yeah. well, which are all like all the rage right now. So, so philosophy matters. Just all that uh, to say. Oh, it does. Yeah. I mean, like I said earlier, I think there's a, all the science, sorry, the vast majority of scientists I've spoken to have been really open-minded about the contribution of philosophy to science. Mm. I'm just slightly concerned that, um, there's a selection bias because the only ones willing to talk to me are the ones who are open-minded. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that most of them don't like it at all. So. Yeah. 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 Well, that's, I mean, that's, that's a sub goal of the podcast is getting this stuff out there to the right people to hear it. Um, which is fantastic. Well, okay. So it's like, can I just jump in? What's yeah, the, please. What's the attention is all you need stuff. I don't know. That's that like, like I should know about. That's like a big paper in, um, in large language model type, uh, type literature because it's all, it's a bunch of Google scholars, folks from Google, oh, okay. uh, and it's like it's like a, a pretty pretty important paper where I believe that was like one of the first ones that that um, pitched the transformer model, which we're finding now in like uh, open AI type stuff. And they're mm-hmm. saying like, you know, we don't we don't need this recurrence. All we all that matters is these uh, large transformers. And I have such a loose grasp on it. I'm trying to learn more because I got a bunch of AI guys coming on. Um, but from what I've gathered the uh, large language model type models are one way and they don't in- incorporate recurrence. And so some folks think that is a problem if you want to develop consciousness because right. it's like we have recurrence, right? And so other people will say, well, no. And this is why the natural kinds thing is kind of fun because if consciousness is a natural kind, then 
this is how I'm thinking about it, and you can totally correct me. If consciousness is a natural kind, then maybe the way we get to it can be in in various different paths, some with recurrence, some with not, but you're still getting to the same right. natural kind. You know, so if you if you have a tiger that that came from natural selection for billions of years, or you you know 3D printed it, you're still going to get the tiger. You're still getting the, right. the natural kind, even though they have a different origin. That's the way I'm thinking about it. That is that is interesting. I feel like um, I'm just trying to think about how to put this. I guess I feel like uh, I feel like I should know about that better than I do. Perhaps my PhD was on attention, so I feel like I should have heard of that. <laughs> well, that's um, the thing. These are all different worlds, and they're like subfields, yeah. and, su and it's like amazing. I'm trying to bring them all together, and it's so much work to be thinking. And they speak completely different language. It's wild. Yeah. Well, I've spoken to computer scientists about um, things like neural networks and um, yeah. large language models. Um, but you, you, you know, I think ultimate, like in terms of meta philosophy, you just need to have a lot of humility because yeah. I, I, don't, I don't mean you specifically. No, I do too though. For sure. I, yeah. I, you just can't like, uh, there's, there's no way that I could ever possibly learn enough to adjudicate whether yeah. Yeah. that, you know, whether you need recurrent processing in large language modeling. Uh, it's, uh, but yeah, it's it's always very interesting. But um, the more you talk to people, the more you realize that there's just, there's just no way that you could get no. you could have a completely panoptic view of the, all the issues. No, and even so, let's say you were like following David Chalmers and saying like, "Oh, I'm going to be a techno philosopher," and I say that because I I kind of want to follow in that lead. That doesn't mean that you would know the ins and outs of the you know fine details of current work on artificial general intelligence because maybe you're thinking about simulation hypothesis and you yeah. spent you know five years writing a dissertation on that so mm -hmm. just because you're even in this field doesn't mean that you understand what's going on here let alone like the the uh the robot ethics or like the ethics of self-driving cars so it's just if there's so much and i i really love it so i want to bring it all on but um it's hard to be a uh i'm uh a generalist today oh uh almost impossible yeah. why is it people say that what's that phrase that samuel taylor coleridge was the last person ever to read everything yeah you something know, like that, that was the last is that the phrase you he that was the last time you could actually be a real true generalist yeah um, yeah i find camera robots fascinating as well as well as self-driving cars like yeah. uh, the, there's there's fascinating issues around uh using robots to care for um vulnerable people and there's also oh yeah fascinating philosophical issues around how the society views uh, you know view, views what is and is not an appropriate job for robots and right right but i think that yeah. would carry too far afield <laughs> that's right well you're, you're gonna have, definitely have to come back on to talk more about this um i i think we should probably define natural kind for for some folks mm -hmm. who, who aren't familiar with that language can you help us what, what's a natural kind and what what is that distinguished against i guess yeah, so um, I like to use a, um, a medical analogy. So the difference between cholera and colic. Mm. So uh, cholera is a medical condition which is um, which is uh, associated with lots of different kinds of symptoms. Mm. But what makes them all cholera 
is that there's a cluster of symptoms which are similar to um, a cluster of symptoms, but they are all caused by the same underlying mechanism. Okay. Um, it's either a bacterium or a virus. I, I honestly can't remember which it is. I think it's bacterial, but I might be wrong. Okay. Um, so there you've got an underlying unity, a thing that's underlying all the things. So even though cholera might present differently in different subjects, it's underlined by this underlying common mechanism. Mm -hmm. The contrast classes with colic. So colic, um, taken in its broadest possible uh, meaning, uh, actually refers to loads of different kinds of things. So there's baby colic, which is uh, excessive crying in uh, newborn babies. Horse colic, which is a condition of their intestines. Hmm. Uh, Devon colic, which is a very old fashioned word for, uh, I think it was caused by lead poisoning. Hmm. So the word colic, I don't know if it's really used that way anymore, but the word colic certainly used to be used um, to cover all these different um, medical conditions. And they are, when you compare cholera and colic, you just feel that they're different things. Like colic is just a word for tons of different stuff. And the reason we have one term for all of them is just kind of historical accident. Right. You know, a doctor should not treat baby colic in the same way that a vet would treat horse colic. It's just not appropriate. They're just not the same thing. Right. Whereas cholera, even though it might manifest in different symptoms, is importantly unified because this underlying similarity. And that's the, that's the idea, which is that sometimes there are certain ways of there are all sorts of properties out there in the world, but some of them are caused by an underlying unity. There's something really important about certain groups of things, which means that they should be grouped um, together. Yeah. And that all the instances of cholera are like that, whereas all the instances of colic aren't. Okay. So uh, a classic example in philosophy is the, the periodic table of the elements. Yeah. Um, you know, um, a gold... Gold is the classic example. There are all sorts of different instances of gold. Um, the, you know, it can be, it can in, in theory, it can be a gas, it can be a solid, it can be a liquid, it can have molten gold. But all those things, they all have really different superficial properties, like the property of gold as a gas, as opposed to property of gold as a solid. They're all, they're totally different, really. Mm. They behave totally differently. Um, but underlying them, there's this important unity, which is that they all have the same atomic number. And that's why we should group them together. And that's what a natural kind is. They're, they're groups of things which they, they, they don't just have superficial similarity. They have a deep similarity because they, in, in some important sense, they stem from the same origin. Like all instances of gold, they all have the same atomic number. All mm -hmm. instances of cholera, they have the same underlying cause. Um, and that's the idea of a natural kind is that certain kinds of similarity in nature are for good, proper underlying causal reasons. Others, mm. like, others like colic, um, they're not even that similar, but mm. even, even if different instances of colic were, they're not the same thing because they're caused by, they're totally different mechanisms cause them. Yeah. Um, that's roughly the idea. Yeah. That's really helpful. I, I think since, since we were talking about machine functionalism a little bit already, I wonder about the distinction between like a natural kind and a functional concept. Like mm. uh, you look at a bunch of different mouse traps, and one 
I don't want to get too mean to mice, but one like, you know, pulls a trigger on a gun. One is poison. You know, one's a, a little miniature guillotine. Like they're all mouse traps, And it looks like there's a unifying uh, functional concept, which is like kill mice. Mm. Um, but, but it doesn't look like that's a natural kind because mouse traps are uh, artifacts, you know, mm. that like humans make. So I wonder about that. Like, what what do you, how do you how can we relate functional concepts to natural kinds like what's what's the difference well i have to, i mean i have to ask what kind of mouse traps you have if one of them pulls a trigger on a gun <laughs> <laughs> yeah. i'm an american man we, we that's our thing yeah um, I, we got it um yeah I, I i just think what you said is is absolutely right like um Lots of functional kinds just aren't natural kinds. Yeah. Um, one of the classic old fashioned examples is a corkscrew. So you have the you have the the waiter's corkscrew, which you just put in and pull out. You have the the weird one with the arms that come up that you twist down. Yeah. You have the really fancy one where you put it in, flip the metal thing over the top, and then sort of oh, yeah. do you know those ones? Yep, yep. Um yeah, the, the idea there is that it's a functional kind because they are defined by their function. They take yeah. cork out of wine bottles, but it's not a natural kind because they have a superficial functional similarity, yeah. but that is all they have. They, they, they do the same thing, but they are, they are, that is all there is to their similarity. Yeah. They're not the same thing because they naturally emerged in nature together or something, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. They, so I, I, it's not that no functional kinds are natural kinds. Right. But there are loads of functional kinds which are natural kinds, like yeah. corkscrews, mouse traps, things like that. Yeah. So when um, I don't want to make the rest of this about natural kinds, but I'm wondering about I, I already mentioned it, but if I 3D print a tiger um, mm. from no genes, you know, no atoms. Well, it's hard to d d distinguish if any of these atoms were ever part of a, a tiger. But let's just say there's I got a whole bunch of atoms over here. There, uh, or fundamental particles, however we're however deep we're 3D printing. But I 3D print a tiger. It looks like it doesn't mm. have the same causal history as mm. the tiger yeah. that was born naturally. Does that still count? Does, is it still a tiger? Or do we have to say like it's tiger star? Uh, yes. Uh, excellent question. Um, I mean, you're, you're basically picking up on um, questions of whether biological kinds are historically yeah, right. Individuated. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so that's the that's the question that's strongly associated with figures like Ruth Millikan. Mm. Um, there's two. Uh, I'm just going to dodge that question, but okay. I will. I, I will right. That's fine. Because, because like, genuinely, I, I don't know. I'm less. I, there's there's a bunch of different issues there. One yeah. of them is like, is it strictly speaking a tiger? Because that tiger is arguably, it's a species categorization. Um, but that's different from a functional categorization. So mm -hmm. like one, this is more sort of philosophy of biology, but one question is, are uh, species historically individuated? Um, like, is it essential to a particular species that it has a certain history? Yeah. If the answer is yes, then it's not a tiger. Um, but it's completely different question to say, well, what about its organs, uh, like its liver and its heart and its paws and stuff? Mm -hmm. Are they historically individuated? And that's where you find, I think, much more of a split. Okay. Um, where you know, 
the aid historical theorists might say, yeah, it's it's got all it's 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 got it's functional, uh, so it has all the same functions. Whereas the historical theorists would say, no, if those organs don't have the right evolutionary history or the right history of any kind, then um, then they, they don't even count as organs, much less yeah. as being tied up. Yeah. The the only other thing I'll say is it's it's a slightly complicated case because of course. In a way, the tiger you're creating is historically linked to real tigers, because you based it on a, on a tiger. <laughs> Do you see? What right, I'm right. So that it's the concept in my brain, or in my head, or my mind, whatever. That's mm. the link between historical tigers and the 3D printed one. So there is still a yeah. link, but it's through a mind. And then we enter into yeah. some mind stuff, and I like that. That's really cool. I, yeah, I'd be inclined. I don't have really fully worked out views in the philosophy of biology, but my immediate thought would be the concepts we use to do things like individuate species in biology are shaped by what biologists need to do. Yeah. And therefore that they just become, they break down with really exotic science fiction cases here. Okay. That's, uh, that, that's my gut instinct, but I don't have quite like an argument for it. That's that's good. I tried to give one that wasn't too science fiction because of three D printing. I could have gone with like a Davidsonian uh, lightning swamp. strikes a uh, yeah swamp swamp tiger right and like swamp tiger yeah it's, yeah it's strikes the thing and then there's no there's no uh, blueprint in my brain, but uh, or in my head in my mind. But anyways, I I, I we went far afield again. Uh, bringing it tightening it all back up. So we have natural kinds, folks. If you want to talk more about natural kinds, I'll have to get a you know philosopher of biology on and we'll talk about that stuff too. But um, oh, yeah. considering consciousness as a natural kind, I don't know if it's worth bringing up the natural kinds framework, the four steps. Um, do, well, do you think we should, um, or I, I think, I think, I think we can do it in a simpler way. Okay. So very roughly, here's the idea. So imagine yeah. gold is a natural kind, which most people would say it is. I mean, there are people who don't believe in natural kinds, but we, we can't engage with them here. Sure. Yeah. We, haven't, we just haven't got space. Um, so imagine you do believe in natural kinds, and most people would say that gold is a natural kind. Mm -hmm. And all the instances of gold are unified by their common atomic structure. Um, atomic num They all have atomic number 79. Now, what you've got there is a group of properties, which are kind of superficial properties of gold, mm -hmm. like being yellowy, being malleable, mm -hmm. I suppose being found in the seams of rocks. Good conductors. Um, Sorry? Being good conductors or whatever. Conducting yeah, conductors. yeah, yeah. Um, now, those properties are superficial properties of gold. Mm. And they are all underpinned by this common thing, which is all having atomic number 79. Mm. Now, what's interesting about that is that gives you a really good test for what gold is. So if you have a sample of some substance and you say, well, is it gold or not? Well, there's all there's all sorts of things you could do to test that. You could test its conductivity, you know. You could test its, you could test how malleable it is, and so on. Yeah. But the best test is to work out whether it has atomic number seventy nine, because that's the kind of underlying nature to gold. Yeah. Um, now, with consciousness, the idea is meant to be something like this. Consciousness is meant to be like a property of the brain or the mind or the soul or whatever. That those debates don't matter for the natural kinds approach, as far as I can right. tell. But so let's just say brain, but it, 
you know, it's consistent with dualism. Um, you can just, you know, it doesn't matter. That debate doesn't matter here. So consciousness is a feature of the brain, let's say. And that feature, those, that property, the property of being conscious, is associated with a lot, lots of other features in the brain as well. So in the same way that all these little properties like being yellowy, being malleable, they all cluster around atomic number 79 mm -hmm. because atomic numbers, having atomic number 79 explains why instances of gold have those properties. Yeah. The idea is you say the same. You look for stuff in the brain, superficial properties which cluster around consciousness. So you might say, well, consciousness is commonly associated with this particular kind of behavior or this particular brain signature or, you know, the, and then you, you, you do sort of normal tests just using normal psychological experiments um, in order to identify what the underlying property of consciousness is. Yeah. And then wherever that is, you look for the signatures of it and you can track that in different, um, in different um, scenarios. Right. But here's another way of putting it. When it comes to gold, your best marker of whether something's gold or not is having atomic number 79. Mm -hmm. So you start with superficial properties like being yellow and being malleable. You discover the underlying property. Then you identify that in a range of scenarios that helps you track where gold is. With consciousness, you look at all the superficial properties that are associated with it. You try and find out what brain thingy is underlying them yeah. or mind thingy or soul thingy. Whatever it is that's underlying that cluster of properties, you identify that and you try and track that in different scenarios. Mm -hmm. what's, what's especially exciting about this or meant to be exciting about it is that you don't necessarily have to track that property in the way that psychology has traditionally tracked consciousness. Whatever that property is, as long as you can identify it through whatever means you like. Yeah. Uh, you can identify consciousness. Yeah. How was that? Was that okay? No, that, that's very good. That's that's very good. I'm I'm wondering, I'm maybe it's anticipating where we're going, but I wonder how you would do that. Because that is the traditional method in psychology. It's verbal report, right? Yeah. And well, so it's verbal report saying, and various other behavioral cues, like you might get a subject to press a button or something. Right. Right. But so this one is saying, no, it's, it's, is it looking more like neurochemistry and, and brain mapping and stuff? Typically, yeah, that's yeah. the kind of thing. So yeah. a, a much cruder way of putting it, which misses out on some of the subtleties, is you don't use verbal reports. You look at the brain stuff that's underlying verbal report and then track that directly. Yeah, yeah. That's the idea. Yeah. Um, that's a slightly cruder way of putting it, but that... But the picture is the same, which is you don't use verbal rapport mm -hmm. or even things like cognitive access. You you try and identify what's underpinning all that stuff. Yeah, and track that. That's yeah. The and then so you 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 toss in some false negatives and say this is yeah. a, a problem for the view. Can you can you help us with that? So when you're looking at consciousness as a natural kind, what you want is a cluster of super properties which tend to indicate. Um, the presence of consciousness in a subject. They're called, they're what I've called its markers. Mm -hmm. There are various different markers you could use. One of them is uh, what's called trace conditioning versus delay conditioning. So 
basically the experiment is something like this. You, um, you, have, um, you have a particular noise, a tone, and then in certain circumstances, you um, fire a puff of air onto the subject's eye. Now, one of the strange things, and then after you do that, you get the uh, subject to assess whether they could tell that the puff was going to follow the tone or not. Right. Um, one of the strange things about it is that subjects seem to make this prediction unconsciously mm. if there isn't a gap between the tone and the puff. Whereas if there is a gap, there seems to be a need for conscious awareness before they mm. can make the prediction. Okay. Uh, that very roughly, that's the idea. So, and the, so the idea is uh, one kind of conditioning requires consciousness, the other just doesn't. One of them is totally unconscious, the other requires consciousness. Yeah. So you say, okay, good. Well, the kind of conditioning that requires consciousness, that's, that's a marker of consciousness. When you have that, you must have consciousness. Right. You know, if the subject needs to be conscious of the, of, of the, of the tone and the puff, if they need to be conscious of that in order to make that prediction, then that's a marker. You can use that as a sign of consciousness. So the problem basically is um, the natural kinds approach requires all these markers of consciousness, right? Mm -hmm. Because what you do is you look at the markers of consciousness, then try and identify the property that underpins them in the same way that you start with all these properties of gold and try and identify its atomic number. The problem is if our picture of what those markers are are radically false or misleading, then the whole thing is slowly going to fall apart. Right. Because right. you're going to start off with a wrong set. It relies, basically, it relies on you having sets of markers which reliably indicate the presence or absence of consciousness. And that's the step one in the framework we didn't cover, but, but marker assembly. And so if you're, I, I think there is kind of a, a recurrent, to use that word again, uh, um, step in the natural kind framework where they go back and they can, they can like yeah. exclude. Um, but, but in order to get the whole ball rolling, it's like a bootstrapping problem of like, how, we have to get the right markers initially and, and, and assemble them. Exactly. That's a boost, bootstrapping problem is exactly the right word. Okay. So like very roughly, if you had to summarize the problem, you would say something like this. And this, what I'm about to say is actually not fair to the natural kinds framework. So it is more sophisticated than this. Mm. But here's a kind of vague gloss on what the problem is. In order for the natural kinds framework to help you measure consciousness, you need a set of markers of consciousness which you can rely on. You need things which reliably indicate the presence and absence of conscious experience. But you... But you, but that's the whole problem you're trying to solve. Right. You're trying to come up with something that measures consciousness. Yeah. So if we had a set of markers of consciousness where we where we were like, yeah, that's great, mm -hmm. uh, then we would. Uh, you don't need natural kinds. You'd go home. Right. Right. You know, the um, consciousness so meter. Very roughly, that's the problem. Yeah. If you had the consciousness meter, you don't need this theory. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Anything that any view which requires you to have a good set of markers of consciousness from the word go cannot help you measure consciousness because that's mm -hmm. what the whole problem is basically yeah yeah that's the idea that's really good well okay so i want to bring up one last thing here and then just a couple of random ones then you got to get to class um <laughs> and i have a, a, a puppy who's probably driving my wife nuts right now i need to um, teach terminology that's right um okay so just 
real quickly, multiple kinds view of consciousness. Sure. Consciousness may be associated with more than one natural kind. Um, yeah. We, how is this a problem? Yeah, why, why I think that this is a problem? And what, what are we even talking about here? I, 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 I love this view. I think, I think it's. Uh, I mean, I love this view in the sense. I don't know whether it's true or not. But I, I think it's really interesting philosophically. Yeah. The main proponent of this view, although I don't know if she still holds it, is Elizabeth Irvine. Okay who wrote a really, really good book called um, Consciousness as a Scientific Con Concept. Um, ba basically, the idea is, um, well, certain things are natural kinds and other things actually just refer to loads of different natural kinds. So um, colic is an example of something that refers to many different natural kinds. Mm -hmm. Really, horse colic, Devon colic, baby colic, they're different things. Yeah. Um, so uh, so that's a possible feature of consciousness. It might be, for example, that visual consciousness and auditory consciousness are just different natural kinds. That's possible. Mm, yeah. It might be that the consciousness associated with thought is, is a different natural kind from the consciousness associated with vision, maybe. Yeah. Um, in which case, the sort of basic way of putting the problem is You've almost made a mistake by trying to come up with a unified scientific study of it in the first place. Yeah. Um, that would be like trying to come up with one theory that covers all different kinds of colic. It just wouldn't work. Right. They, they shouldn't be grouped together for the purposes of science. Yeah. That's not that that wouldn't mean that science can't study consciousness. It would just mean that trying to have a methodology, one methodology, yeah, to study consciousness, um, which is kind of what the natural kinds approach is. That that would be as misguided as trying to study all the different kinds of colic under one banner if you were a doctor it just wouldn't be a good idea right no this is so this is so good so i wonder earlier uh, you you just mentioned that uh that you're at least I, I believe you said you're like sympathetic at least to this view that like conscious states go with a a subject does that is that a yeah. good representation yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. so if there's multiple kinds of consciousness if perception is different than uh, you know, abstract uh, thought, and those are all happening in one. Does that mean that there's like, is that still consistent with the view that there's a singular, unified, phenomenal conscious subject? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. okay. So the idea very roughly would just be like um, the different kinds of consciousness uh, present in different conscious experiences would just be different properties of the same subject. Cool. Okay. So like uh, a leg is a very different thing from a head. Yeah. But I have both. You know, okay. they're different natural kinds, but I have both. <laughs> okay. Uh, they're, they're both, uh, I mean, they're not strictly speaking properties, but you can loosely say they're both properties of me. Yeah. Um, you know, my, my mass and my height are different, but they're both of me. Yeah. So if consciousness was associated with different kinds, the view would get slightly more complex, but not, it wouldn't be a problem for the view that there's one subject associated well, with conscious experience. So, okay, so putting on my phenomenal, phenomenologist hat and saying, like, there's a unified field that I have of consciousness right now, and I'm hearing, and I'm kind of tasting the coffee that's still in my mouth, and, and all this, you can abstract them out and, and represent them as different qualia, but, yeah. or qual, yeah, you can take the each qual, individual quale, but, you know, actually, there's this unified experience that I'm having, is the, but if, if there's multiple kinds of uh, consciousness, it seems like, Really, it's like auditory 
qualia and visual qualia and abstract mm. thought qualia. And they're like a bundle theory and I'm putting them all together and it's not really a unified experience. Did, what, what do you make of that? Yeah, well, um, two things. Uh, first thing is I don't really know what the unity of consciousness is meant to be. Okay. I don't um, I, I, uh, maybe I just don't have it, but like, <laughs> I, I, I was never quite sure what people were really getting at. Like I have conscious experiences and some of them feel like, like I can get the sense in which my experience of this is like spatially related to my experience of that. But the people who talk a lot about unity seem to be talking about something a bit stronger. I was never quite sure what that was. Yeah. So I, my answer might just be really unsatisfactory because it's not that I don't think there is such a thing as unity of consciousness. I, I'm just not quite sure exactly which feature that sort of try to pinpoint. Mm, okay. um, that that's more, I'm not, I'm not a skeptic. I just, sure. uh, I would need way more information before I was really sure exactly what the unity of consciousness amounted to. Yeah. Um, but having said that, I think I'd be inclined to say that this stuff about whether consciousness is a natural kind, it's all meant to be pitched at quite a sort of deep sort of scientific level. Yeah. We're, we're very much looking for underlying properties, you know, brain properties or, you know, more metaphysical mind, soul, whatever. That's yeah. the, that's the, that's the level at which we're aiming. Yeah. Um, when we, when we ask whether it's a natural kind or not. So it, it's totally, um, it's totally consistent with that, that, they might be different natural kinds at a scientific level, but unified at the level of phenomenology. You know, they might yeah. they might share similarities at the phenomenological level whilst being disunified at a scientific level. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. So that no, that's that's so good because there's the binding problem in neuroscience, and then there's the phenomenal unity of, uh, of consciousness at the philosophy of mind level, and so they're hmm. yeah, they're 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 related, but they're two different problems depending on like, if you're looking at the manifest image or the scientific image, I guess. Um, yeah, it's, it's a manifest scientific image thing. Yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, that's cool. Consciousness is unified in relation to the manifest image. Uh, if a multiple kinds view is correct, which I don't know if it is, yeah. then they would be disunified at a scientific level. Nice. I, 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 that's a lovely way of putting it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, all right. So last one here for you. Um, so we got, we got this problem. It looks like maybe like an undercutting defeater, uh, for the natural kinds view. Cause they said, we can do this work. And you're saying, no, you can't because you got false negatives and we got potentially multiple kinds and stuff. So wrapping all that up, uh, I wonder just totally speculative, but it has to do with natural kind stuff. If we made, um, synthetic consciousness, um, because I don't know how else to talk about this anymore. Because people say artificial general intelligence doesn't necessitate consciousness because intelligence right. and consciousness come apart. So I'm calling it synthetic consciousness, lab-made consciousness. Yeah. If natural kinds view is 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 uh, true and consciousness is a natural kind, does that mean that you can't really make um, synthetic consciousness? I guess it would depend on what you mean by synthetic. But you, you've just kind of tapped into like these uh, maybe like psychophysical... Hmm laws that are already there but you just tapped into it in a new way other than the biological way of creating a, an infant in natural ways yeah 
Yeah, would that follow, or what do you think? I think no, I, I don't think it would follow. But I think what 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 would actually end up happening? Um, I think we might reach a point where the natural kinds. So let's assume consciousness is a natural kind. Yeah, uh, we might have reached the point where it starts. The questions like what you just asked asked start to turn on old issues like to do with functionalism and things. Yeah. Um, and, and it might be, my hunch, I might be wrong about this, but my hunch is the natural kinds approach doesn't have much to offer there. Okay. So the natural kinds approach says, um, what you should do is you should look for an underlying property, uh, which is the property of consciousness, uh, and that's the natural kind property of consciousness. But one way it could go is you find that it's a brain property, that synthetic organisms, uh, synth synthetic beings can't have. Mm -hmm. Another view, you know, if dualism is correct, maybe it's a soul property that, again, may maybe synthetic um, machines can't have. Yeah. In which case, the answer is uh, no, it, it wouldn't be conscious. But it might just be an, a, a functional property, which maybe synthetic machines can have, in which case, yes, yeah, they can have consciousness. And so it's not that the natural kinds approach is irrelevant to that question, yeah. but I very much think it comes down to, well, is consciousness underpinned by a functional property or by a biological one or yeah. by something else? And those yeah. are, as, as you know, those are all questions from the sixties and seventies and eighties. <laughs> right. And I'm not entirely convinced the natural kinds approach has much to add. Okay, that's so. So I'm thinking in my mind, I was thinking the upshot would of the multiple kinds versus natural kinds debate would be, uh, would have it would have some practical implications for robot ethics because if it if in my mind, if it's a natural kind, then you you reach this level. So if you have, uh, I guess this would be functionalism maybe, but if you have like a an analog, it doesn't have to be like an isomorph of us, but but something that has consciousness that is analogous to ours that was made in a lab then mm. it looks like it should probably have the same rights that come with ours but if if you're going for like a multiple kinds view then maybe it shouldn't because it has it's been programmed or it's been created with different goals and so maybe it oh, really I likes see. do you see what i'm saying so it, do, it yeah, wouldn't have yeah. the same rights as us because it it's just a different type of thing although it's conscious it's, see, it's it's yeah. not analogous it's a whole different new thing it didn't reach our level it's a different whole thing. That's that's the tiger analogy. Going back to that too, like yeah, and um, yeah, it reminds me really strongly of. Uh, uh, do you know the pig that wants to be? Do you know? I this? don't think so. I don't think so. It's a it's a joke in a, a joke in one of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy books. Okay, I've only read the first one. Oh, okay. I I think it's in the second, but okay. Uh, my. My my colleagues who are, if anything, even nerdier than me would would <laughs> would absolutely hate me for not being able to remember which one of it. But I, I think it's in that. Okay. And the idea is uh, some uh, chef uh, uh, uses um, science to breed a pig uh, who that desperately wishes to be eaten. Yeah, this is sounds exactly right. Yeah, this yeah. is what. Yeah. And then the question is: Is it right to eat them? Um. So if the organism or the synthetic machine had a kind of consciousness such that its desires were completely and utterly diverging from ours um would it be what would it have the same moral rights or would it have very different ones yes yeah 
Denari. That's <laughs> <laughs> so I good. Know, I, I do wonder sometimes whether, you know, I mean, maybe you've thought more about this than me because I'm really not an ethicist, but is it the case that we think that consciousness matters for ethics because that's what that's where you manifest your desires like your desires are what matter ethically or is it more that if something's conscious it has certain rights no matter what its view on those desires are do you see why i I think that's a yeah i think that's a kind of a live debate and Mm. so i am i am a christian and i'm in more christian philosopher philosopher circles and i think the second one is the way that a lot of christians go but they also will many of them will limit it to the imago dei the image of god to human beings whereas the my my secular friends who have a a lot of them as well they want to ground ethics in consciousness because of pain and oh yes of course i see right and so um that would be weird because what would be painful for me would be if you made me write a bunch of uh, cover letters for academics and stuff looking for jobs i would hate that but if you made a, a large language model or some other, you know, whatever, maybe Ben Gertzel has the right way of making AI that way, but the, all the goals and sub goals are like, I want to make cover letters, then it wouldn't be painful and it wouldn't be wrong to like force force. Right. But make this, uh, a, this yeah. synthetic conscious being write cover letters. So you want to build a machine that desperately wants to write. <laughs> I don't want to, if someone does, if so. I don't have to write that many cover letters. Uh, that's why I'm uh, doing the podcast. So I'll never have to do that again. But uh, if someone right. did, you know, imagine the machine that didn't just write you cover letters, but it desperately wanted to and really enjoyed it. Yeah. Well, yeah. You'd have to, well, you'd have to be careful. Modern age. Live in. Yeah, <laughs> right. I know, man, but, but, but it seems like maybe ethically you'd, you should probably you should probably aim for that because you should probably not make a conscious being like us and then force it to do menial tasks that we hate doing. Cause that just sounds like slavery. Yeah. I'm, I don't know. I mean, I would have thought that. I'm, I'm, I don't know. I'm really outside my field right now. No, this is but great. The AI episode that I've talked about desire satisfaction in AI is that, that there must be people who thought about the desires of robots. It, I'm not, I'm not, I sure. mean, this desire, is... desire satisfaction is a huge field in ethics, isn't it? So there must yeah. be some relevance to AI. I'm sure. But th- th- that's why I think like the natural kind stuff, um, I understand that it's like, no, we're looking at the biological markers and stuff, but that's why I think this question's so interesting because I, I want to know if we're making a synthetic conscious being, will it, this is, it's the question of Ultron versus Mr. Meeseeks. Mr. Meeseeks is from, um, Rick and Morty and you push a button and he pops into existence and he wants to do a task for you. And then he pops out when he's done. But Ultron was kind of like a, like a really smart Tony Stark and was like, look, well, it depends on how you interpret Ultron in the movie. Uh, but what film is this? Ultron is from, um, the Avengers. He's a AI that, that runs amok right away and tries to blow up the world because he's trying to have peace. And so it's a whole thing, but it's like, if, if you created a synthetic me, I would not want to do your cover letters. But if you created a synthetic uh, cover letter writer, then he would be like, yes, I would I would love to do that for you. Like genuinely, I'm not lying. I would love to do that. So I think that that's an important thing to think about. Well, like why make a conscious being before you solve that? 
It is interesting. I, uh, yeah, I mean, it is interesting. I've met people who, who love doing things that I would absolutely hate. Um, and I, I used to, I used to play a lot of chess and I know loads of people absolutely can't stand that. Sure. Um, when you meet a human, it seems somehow really patronizing to tell them what they should and shouldn't like. Um, so why, why think that, you know, why, why shouldn't we satisfy a artificial beings desires? Yeah. Uh, if they like writing cover letters. Would it not be patronizing of us to say that that was somehow an inferior design? I don't know. Yeah, right. Or or if you had the choice between making one that doesn't, so they both have the same job, they're going to write cover letters. But if you had the choice between making one that really enjoyed it or one that felt the way you do, where you don't like it doing it, then you should definitely make the one that likes doing it. I don't know. <laughs> this I don't is know. good. This is so no, good. I, no, I... It's, I I am in, I'm really interested in AI ethics, but yeah. I find my ethical intuitions break down around this area. Sure. Um, sure. And I wouldn't really like to make judgments based just on intuition anyway. If you want yeah, to. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know is the short answer, but I do what I certainly think it's a good question. I hope there are people who are paid to think about it. <laughs> it's it's awesome. In fact, yeah, yeah. Well, Henry, this has been so much fun, man. I, I we, we we covered some really deep stuff and we didn't cover some deep stuff because there's so much to the paper. Mm. Um so I wanna I wanna commend everyone. Go go check it out. It's called Consciousness as a Natural Kind and the Methodological Puzzle of Consciousness. I can't remember if it's out yet or what journal it's in. It's in mind and language. Okay, awesome. Uh, yeah, it's and out. it's already out. Cool. Well, fantastic. Um if somebody wanted to read some more of your stuff, where where might they find you? Or you can just Google my name, um, Henry's awesome. Taylor Philosophy, and you find my website, and there's all sorts of bits and bobs there. Awesome. Um, it's, yeah. Very cool. Well, uh, public public engagement stuff I've done as well. If they're interested. Oh, awesome, awesome. This this has been so much fun. Like this has got to be one of my one of my favorites uh, in in recent times because you're so fun to talk with. And thanks for letting me go down all these rabbit trails and crazy questions. Like this is this is what I really enjoy. So this was a, a real treat for me. Yeah, I really enjoyed it as well. I just think there might have been a generational difference with like Hitchhiker's Guide versus Voltron. <laughs> Ultron, Ultron. Ultron. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I'll, uh, I'll give that a Google it's and so uh, good. get back to you. Definitely. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. Well, uh, you'll, you'll have to come back on and talk more consciousness with us in the future. Folks, for now, that's going to have to do it. This has been Parker's Pensies, and as always, all glory to God.